Lord, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we are very uh, aware of our neediness. God, we declare uh, as a church how desperately we need you. God, we need you in so many ways, uh, many ways that we're actually unaware of. And so, Lord, I pray as we approach your word uh, that we would have that, that needy posture for you, a dependent posture upon you. Uh, Lord, we can't understand this text and apply it without the help of your spirit. So would you um, use your spirit now to give us spiritual wisdom and understanding? Would you soften our hearts to be able to receive your word and to be doers of it, not just hearers? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the famous phrase, we interrupt this broadcast, has been used frequently and by radio and TV networks when breaking into a program that's in progress to deliver important news uh, or information. When you hear that phrase, we interrupt this broadcast, it, it prompts something uh, probably in most of us. It probably has led you to even recall a memory uh, in your own life where you're watching TV or you're listening to the radio. And all of a sudden you hear that phrase, we interrupt this broadcast, and then you hear really important news, you know, like 9-11 or Princess Diana's death or the Berlin Wall, you know, crumbling. So some sort of important events or information that needed to be communicated. It's a phrase that commands our attention, a phrase that, that serves as an interruption, alerting us to something very important. When we come to 1 Samuel 28, we are experiencing that same type of interruption, especially when you get to verse 3. It's almost like the author is using that phrase without actually saying it. We interrupt this broadcast of the David story, and we're cutting now to the Saul story. That's very much the feel here. The first two verses in chapter 28 are picking up where chapter 27 left off, where David is serving a Philistine king, King Achish. David has been deceptive in portraying himself as his ally, uh, when in reality, David and his men have been out killing Israelite enemies who just so happen to be the same enemies as the Philistines. And David's plan has been working until you get to verse one, and we notice that King Achish and the Philistines are gearing up for war against the Israelites. David's gonna be put in a pickle here because King Achish tells David, he says, you and your men will join me against the Israelites. So it makes us wonder, what, what will David do? Like he surely can't join them and kill the Israelites, but if he declines, he's gonna blow his cover and the Philistines will surely kill him. We see David's response in verse two, it's very non-committal. It's that type of friend where you ask him, hey, you wanna hang out Friday? And they respond with, oh yeah, that sounds fun. It's like, well, are we hanging out or, or not? It's very non-committal because he basically says to King Achish, uh, you will see what your servant can do. Okay, so are you joining King Achish or are you going to do what you've done in the past, like chapter 21 and deceive King Achish and somehow escape this dilemma? We're on the edge of our seats in verse two, wondering what David will do, how he will get out of this pickle when all of a sudden, Verse three comes and we basically hear this, we interrupt this broadcast and it changes the scene. We're not gonna know exactly what happens to David until chapter 29. Now we could get frustrated and, and we could say, wait a second, I'm watching the David show, turn it back on. Like I wanna know what happens to him. What, how does he get out of that pickle? But we need to understand 
that this interruption is showing us something very important to the overall narrative of 1 Samuel. Specifically, it's showing us, basically saying, hey, I think David is in a hard spot. Let's, let's look at Saul for a moment. Let's see what he's going through and see if his situation is actually worse. So this morning, we're going to predominantly look at verses 3 through 25 as the focus is really entirely on King Saul. We're going to see four different pictures of Saul that will help us understand why the interruption in the David show. And you understand, this is basically it when it comes to Saul. Saul is going to die in chapter 31. And so this is really the last kind of exposure that we have of him. Let's look at the first picture here. The first one in verses three through seven is a desperate Saul. The David TV show, if you will, is interrupted to tell us something that we already know, that Samuel has died. All right, this is a flashback. We already know that. And it also refers to another flashback of Saul's correct decision in removing all the the mediums and necromancers out of the land. These are the witches and fortune tellers and the spiritists. And this this practice was very common in the ancient Near East, the the witchcraft and the fortune telling, all that. But it was strictly prohibited according to the Mosaic law. So Saul did something well. Now, that seems like random information for us. Samuel's dead and the witches are gone. But the the author here, he's he's building something for us. He continues to build. You look at verses four and five, and we're told that the the Philistine army had encamped at a place called Shunem. Shunem was an Israelite town. So the Philistines have taken over Shunem, which tells us just how much of a threat the Philistines are to the Israelites. Saul and his army are encamped at Gilboa. Now they're on the, basically the same valley, just on opposite sides. The Philistines are to the north and the Israelites are to the south. And that's important because the Philistines have a tactical advantage. Their strategy is to cut off the Israelites from the north, which would be absolutely crippling. So much so that verse five tells us that Saul is afraid. He's, he's trembling greatly at the Philistine threats. You get to verse six and just continues to pile on Saul. He's, we're told that God is silent toward him in every possible way. Now notice what the text is doing for us. It's showing us just how desperate Saul is. Saul's two greatest enemies, David and the Philistines, are seemingly linked up now and they have this tactical advantage. But not only that, you have the Lord who is silent, giving no direction to Saul, no help to him. On top of that, Samuel is dead. So Saul can't even go to him for for direction or help either. And what's more is that Saul's removed all of the sorcerers and the witches. So there's no option for him to connect with a power outside of himself. What the text wants us to know is that Saul is utterly alone facing the greatest crisis of his life. And the text is showing us, but basically how will Saul respond to this? How will Saul steward his desperation? Will he finally repent and come back to the Lord? Verse seven tells us, he asks his servants to seek out a woman who is a medium so he can talk with her. All right, Saul fails 
at stewarding his desperation faithfully and misses another opportunity. What's interesting is Saul's servants know exactly where to go. They go to Endor to see this witch, this medium woman who is there, and it's about to get crazy. <laughs> so buckle up here. Uh, that's the first picture of Saul. He's uh, desperate. Secondly, though, we have Saul who's disguised in verses 8 uh, through 14. Verse 8 paints the scene perfectly. Saul has to put on these different clothes, right? Which is very significant because that means he had to take off what? His royal robe, his royal attire. And that's been really important throughout 1 Samuel because that prompts us to Saul, at least his behavior is that he's about to conduct himself in very unkinglike behavior, all right? So he takes off his royal robe, puts on this disguise, these different clothes, and uses the cover of night to travel to Endor. Now, where's Endor? Well, Endor is just a couple miles north of Shunem. So if you're into geography, I probably should have had a map for this, but if you're visualizing this, the Israelites are to the south, the Philistines are in Shunem, and the witch is just north of where the Philistines are. So Saul has to use the cover of night, use this disguise to kind of skirt around and dodge the Philistines just to get to this witch, right? He is, he is risking everything going behind enemy lines. Now, another reason why he is disguised is because this act of divination, the, the calling or contacting of the dead was illegal, right? He enacted that just a few years prior. He gets to the woman and he's asking her to contact someone from the dead, someone that he will name in a moment. And the woman's immediately suspicious, right? She's jumping all over. She wonders if this is like a, a sting operation or something. And, and like, I was looking at that, I'm like, man, this is so on brand for Saul. <laughs> like, this is so Saul. What we know of him, he's removing his royal attire. He's taking this very foolish risk, kind of going around the Philistines just to participate in the breaking of God's command, something that he enacted just years prior. And what's more is verse 10. He swears by the Lord to this woman that no punishment will come to her. So, He's swearing an oath by the Lord about this very act of disobedience to the Lord. Right? It's unbelievable, but it's, it's so Saul. In verse 11, he tells the woman to bring up from the dead, the prophet Samuel. And she has to be even more suspicious about that. But verse 12, well, verse 12 happens. Right? The woman, when she saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and immediately accused Saul of deceiving her. She's somehow able to kind of connect the dots about Saul's true identity. Now, again, admittedly, this is a bizarre passage of scripture, maybe one of the most bizarre chapters in all of the Bible. And we're really not told a lot of details about what this woman did or how she made all of this happen. And in looking at what commentators have said, some basically interpret what this woman uh, did as just an amazing acting job. That in a moment, Samuel is going to be kind of brought up from the dead, but clearly Saul can't see him. She can see him. And she takes the information that she knows and basically does an amazing impersonation, right? It's just kind of one big acting job, all right? Now that's one particular position. That's very possible. But just a basic reading 
of these verses would lead one to believe that this was a successful act of divination where a prophet of God was called up from the dead. Now, again, throughout the Bible, there just aren't enough specifics for us to, to discern exactly what and how uh, those practices entailed. We just don't know enough. But however, the Bible never denies its reality. The Bible never says that that stuff's not true or it's not real. What the Bible does say is that it condemns its practices. It says, stay away from it. It's basically, this stuff is real, but get away from it. Don't get near it. So it's very possible that this, this female medium or witch was able to call up Samuel from the dead through witchcraft, but under God's power and God's permission. After all, I thought that was interesting. The woman's scream like almost caught her off guard. Like she almost encountered a, a power different than her own type of magic. So per, just my view personally here, I, I find it most convincing that God is behind all of this, that God is the one who is sending Samuel to Saul to deliver really the last word of judgment against Saul. And he uses this woman to do just that. Right, one commentator said it this way. He said, it seems far more likely that the Lord sent Samuel to Saul on this evening, just as on a very different occasion, God sent Moses and Elijah to Jesus in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration scene, right? It's very possible. Something that God can do under his jurisdiction. Now, I know that's probably not enough uh, information. Maybe some of you came into this morning being like, oh man, he's going he's gonna to go after the Harry Potters and he's going to start going after, which, you know, I, th there's, just, there's just not enough here to know all of the details here. So we want to keep the plain things, the main things, and I'll just move on. I want to point out here again, notice how Samuel is described by this woman. He's described in a way that Samuel, when he heard it, he knew it was Samuel, this old man wrapped in a robe, right? That fits Samuel's description. And so Saul bows down and pays his respects. If you remember the last interaction that Saul and Samuel had, uh, it was very centered on Samuel's robe. Remember Samuel is basically telling Saul, hey, your reign is over. Your kingdom is gonna be given to another. You've been rejected by God. And Saul kind of freaks out, grabs at Samuel, and grabs his robe and it, and it tears, it, it, it rips. And so Samuel then responds and says, your kingdom will be torn from you. So here's this robe again. Now Saul bowing down to Samuel, this is actually the first and only time in all of 1 Samuel in which Saul bows down to another human being. It's an interesting picture. This tall, tall king is finally brought down to his knees. Well, let's move into the actual conversation that Samuel and Saul have. This is in verses 15 through 19. We have another picture of Saul, and it is a deserted Saul. Verse 15 is likely one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Samuel begins the conversation here, not with encouragement of, hey, how's the family? Long time no see but immediately he's like annoyed. Like, why are you bothering me? Like, what, what, what possibly could you need or want? And Saul just explains his, his situation and he describes it in a way that is just absolutely filled with despair. 
It's like the Philistines are, are gunning for me. God has turned away from me. God will not answer me. As at this point in the dialogue, at least for me, I'm wondering, what, what did Saul expect to hear from Samuel? What did Saul actually want Samuel to say? Uh, we're told in verse 15, he wants Samuel to tell him what to do, but in regards to what? To, to escape the Philistine threat? Uh, to somehow retain his kingship? Maybe Saul really wanted Samuel to tell him how to repent? Like we're, we're not told exactly what, but what we know about Saul is that he probably wanted just to be, uh, you know, encouraged or reinforced his own way. Like, hey, you know, Samuel, tell me how I can, you know, escape this threat from the Philistines, keep safety, keep control, but I don't really want to genuinely repent, right? That, that lines up to what we know about Saul, but Samuel won't have that. Look at verse 16. He rebukes Saul, firmly reminds him that God has turned away from him and that God is his enemy. He says, look, I've already told you all, all of this already. Like your kingdom is done. It's going to be torn away from you. It's going to be given to a neighbor. But this time he specifies who that neighbor is. This is the first time. It's going to be given to David, right? Very significant moments. And all of what I think Samuel is telling Saul is like, bro, you're going to be deserted. You're losing everything. God is no longer even speaking to you. Verse 18, Samuel provides the reason for all this. It's because Saul did not obey the voice of God. Remember chapter 15, he did not fulfill the assignment to wipe out the Amalekites completely. Right? And then in verse 19, he tells Saul that God will give Israel into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow Saul and his sons will die. Now it says there that he will be with him. That's not a reference to heaven, but that's a reference to death. You'll be with me, I'm dead, you will also be dead. My personal take is that Saul's not saved. This is absolutely crushing news for Saul. Like this, this is it for him. I mean, and, and just the, how bizarre this scene is. Like his death is being predicted in the midst of this divination type of activity from Samuel and he's absolutely devastated. He's so devastated that this now leads to the fourth picture of Saul. And that is Saul being distraught, which I think is probably too soft. He's just utterly dejected, whatever word you want to put in there. But verses 20 through 25, I mean, this is, this is it. In all the first Samuel, this is what we have of Saul. And verse 20 is such a powerful description. It's th this picture of a man who, who went all in, living for himself, rejecting the word of God, and now tastes the bitter emptiness of those decisions. Falls to the ground, he's consumed with fear, drained of all his strength, refusing to eat. Saul is deep in the depths of despair. Continues, and really the only help he gets is from this witch. This witch in verse 21, verse 22, comes to him and tells him to obey her. Says, you need to eat. And he refuses at first, eventually complies. And it's such an interesting picture. You've got Saul who's sitting on this bed while this woman is making this meal fit for a king. And yet we all know Saul is far from being fit for a king. This is the last meal, the last supper, if you will, before the death of Saul. He's helpless, hopeless, and dejected. 
Well, this chapter uh, is a very interesting chapter. There's um, a lot in here, I think, in, re- in regards to the application. I think as we're thinking about how to apply this, we answer the question, okay, now what? We've got maybe the what, the so what, how do we bridge it to us today in 2024? I think there are two main um, application points that I wanna close the sermon with. Here's uh, the first one. I think there's a challenge here to desire the guide, capital G, God, guide more than guidance. This chapter, I think, shows us how desperate Saul was. Saul travels three or four miles to Endor, dodging the Philistines under the cover of night, takes a huge risk. But what was the object of his desperation? It wasn't God, it was information. Saul wanted to be be told what to do. He wanted guidance for the day of battle against the Philistines. He didn't really want God. He wanted clarity. He wanted insight. He wanted that type of direction, but he didn't want God himself. And here's the challenge. Which one do you desire more? Do you desire God more than direction from God? I mean, truly, do you desire being with the Lord more than clarity about whatever decision is right before you? I think the the caution here in this text is to be careful that we don't idolize clarity and direction and insight more than God. A great way to, to discern which one you love more, which one you want more, is just by watching what your heart craves when you're in a season in which you need to make a big decision. You need to kind of choose a direction. Pay attention to what your heart is desiring, what your heart is saying. Is your heart saying in that moment, is your heart saying, give me clarity, give me direction, just tell me what to do. Is that what your heart's saying? Or is your heart saying, just give me God. Like, give me, give me more of God. That, that's all that I need right now. And even if I don't know what to do, I'm good because I have him. That even if I persist in this fog of confusion and I don't know the right direction, I'm okay with that because I have God and he's all that I need. Which one describes you more? When you're going through a season of of wrestling with the right decision. Because here's the thing, we're, we're actually not promised 100% certainty in the decisions that we make that it's the right one. We're not. We're not promised that God is going to write the answer and mail it to us and put it in our mailbox. And I, I, I hate that. Like, I, I wish he would do that. We're not promised that though. We're promised wisdom, James 1, when we lack it. We're promised that he's gonna make our paths straight when we lean not on our own understanding, but on him and trust him with all our heart, Proverbs 3. We're promised spiritual discernment, Romans 12. But you are not promised God through this audible voice that he's going to tell you exactly what to do with the decision that is before you. And that I know that drives me nuts because it reveals within my own heart just how very little control I actually have. And man, that feels vulnerable. Like that's really stretching 
to not know exactly the right decision that's before me. For me, I know the, the temptation within my own heart, if I could just be transparent with you this morning, is to use God as a means to getting to the end of clarity. Does that resonate with you? Like, I, I just, I want to know the right decision. I want the right direction right there. And I know God knows everything. He sees the end from the beginning. <laughs> so I know what to do. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna seek him. But if you looked inside my heart and really inspected the motives in seeking him, would you find that I, what I really want more is the right path or just being with God? Man, that's hard. That's so very hard, so very challenging because man, as you're wrestling with your own decisions of do I take this job or not? Or which school do I send my child to next year? Or do I buy this house or that house? Or do we have another child or not? All of these decisions, right? And those are big decisions, but even, even uh, you know, less um, urgent decisions, right? It's so easy, I think, to use God as a means to our own end. And this is the challenge for us is to desire him more than clarity, to desire the guide more than guidance, something Saul failed at. Well, this leads us to the, the second, and I think the predominant application of this chapter and really even chapter 29, and that is to put our trials in proper perspective. Put our trials in proper perspective. It's interesting here when you follow the chronological order of chapters 28 and 29, because the author actually tells the story anachronistically. Meaning, if you wanted the correct flow chronologically, it would go from chapter 28, verses one and two, to chapter 29, to chapter 30, and then chapter 28, verses three through 25. And we know that because of geography. We know that because the Philistines are moving south to north. They're moving from Gath, and they end up in Shunem. The problem with that is that Aphek, which is the location of chapter 29, is right in the middle between Gath and Shunem, which leads us to conclude that the Philistines, actually, they go from, they go from Gath to Aphek, chapter 29, and then Shunem, which is the second half of chapter 28, which begs the question, why? Like, why tell the story out of chronological order. Why leave us hanging after verse two, right? Why the cliffhanger here? Just tell us what happened to David. Well, again, it's the same reason why that message, when you're watching TV or listening to the radio, we interrupt this broadcast, yada, 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 right? We get that message because there's something far more urgent that we need to know. So the author here is saying, look, I know you're on the edge of your seat about David, but I need to interrupt this scene here to tell you of something of far greater importance. And the, the, the reason for that is so you and I can compare side by side David's trial and Saul's trial. David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma. And by doing so, 1 Samuel is basically saying, hey, like, I know David's in a bad spot here, but don't worry about him because there's actually something far worse, catastrophically far worse than being caught by Philistines. 
And it's what Saul is experiencing right now. It's being cut off by the Lord. It's being rejected by the Lord. It's, it's experiencing utter silence from your creator. And that's exactly what Saul is experiencing here. Verse 15, God has turned away from him and is silent. It's far worse than what David is experiencing in his own trial. And, and it puts it in perspective for us. It puts David's trial in, in its proper context. Because again, what David's going through is not easy. It's life-threatening. And we'll see next week what happens to David. But the point of the text here is to point out that what Saul is going through is far worse. That Saul no longer has access to the Lord. So my encouragement for you is whatever it is that you're going through, whatever trial it is, put it in its proper context. Put it in its proper perspective. And I say that, and I, I don't say that flippantly this morning. I don't say that lightly. I don't have a cavalier attitude about what I'm saying. I'm saying that to encourage you this morning, that you might be in a season of parenting and you're just utterly exhausted. Maybe you feel just trapped in this chapter of parenthood or, or helpless. And this trial just feels so overbearing. Or maybe others of us are experiencing just th this type of pressure in the workplace that feels so overwhelming, whether it's because of the workload that you have, or maybe because your employer is treating you unjustly, maybe unfairly looking you over, whatever the case may be. Or maybe at school, you're being made fun of by classmates, or you're being excluded, or you're being poorly treated. Maybe your health, your personal health is failing, or someone that you love that's close to you, their health is failing. Or maybe your marriage is, is nowhere where it needs to be. Or maybe you have this picture in your mind of what life should look like right now at this time in your life. And it's far from that. And you just have this shattered dream. Look, all of that might be true, might be your reality here today. But what 1 Samuel 28 is declaring is that there is something far worse that those trials and the suffering there are devastating. Yes, like you will experience things in life where you wonder, can I possibly go on? You will experience that. But whatever it is, it's not as dreadful as someone who says exactly what Saul said in verse 15, where God has turned away from me and no longer answers me. That's worse. And again, church, I'm not saying that flippantly. Like I know what some of you are walking through and some of you are walking through the valley right now. But I'm encouraging you to, is to put it in its proper perspective and realize that even in the midst of horrific suffering, you still have access to the throne of grace where God, the God who reigns supreme, the God of the universe, he sits on this throne and he has all power and all authority. And this God that you have access to loves you, delights in you, is for you, and he is with you. 
that you have access to this God who, according to Psalm 116, he bends his ear down to hear the prayers of his children, that you have a God who, who according to Romans 8, loves you with a never fading love, a love that will never be separated from you, that death won't separate you from his love, persecution won't, sword won't, famine won't, nakedness, spiritual attack, nothing can separate you from his love. You have a God who according to Zephaniah 3, sings over you and delights in you. You've access to him. So look, I know whatever it is that you're going through is bad and you wonder if you can continue on, but you still have God and he should be enough for you. He's all that you need. Put it in its proper perspective. Again, verse 15, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. And yet, can I, can I share with you why I love Jesus so much? Why I value the gospel so highly is that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, verse 15 will never be true for those who are in Christ that God will never turn away from his people because on the cross, God the Father turned away from Jesus. And it's stunning to think about that, that Jesus, as he's dying in your place, Jesus is hanging there and what did he cry out? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus felt turned away from by the father. He felt abandoned. He felt forsaken like Saul, but not because of Jesus' sin. Jesus never sinned. He's perfectly righteous. It's because he was taking your place. He's paying for your sin. He's taking your penalty and your consequences. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's unbelievable that God treats Jesus the way that we should have been treated so that you and I could be treated the way that Jesus is treated. It's unbelievable how the gospel changes everything so that we'll never be separated from God. Well, this chapter ends with a scene of Saul having his last meal before his death, last supper meal. Does that remind you of anybody? Anybody in the Bible where his last meal is highlighted before his death? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took his disciples in the upper room and they had what's known as the last supper, last meal before he died. And here's Saul eating his last meal before he dies in battle against the Philistines. But here's the key difference. Saul is experiencing his last meal completely overwhelmed with hopelessness. He's in complete despair. And that's the way that he goes to his death, but not Jesus. No, Jesus at the last supper. And when he went to the cross, even though he, he experienced the full weight of what he was going to, to do, look at the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew that that would not be the end of the story. 
Jesus knew that he would die, but three days later, God would raise him back to life, showing victory over sin and the grave and our enemy and producing for us, providing for us eternal, ultimate living hope. A living hope because Jesus is alive and Jesus reigns and he's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And there's coming a day where every knee will bow, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus and Jesus alone is King. All right, listen to 1 Peter, how he says it here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, I know 1 Samuel 28 is bizarre, but it's filled with hope. It's filled with encouragement for those of us who are on this side of the cross, that life might be daunting at times, but it's not as bad as it could be. Because even though everything in your life could be taken away from you, everything could, the one thing that matters most a hundred million years from now will never be taken from you. And it's Jesus. And we can get through anything with that, right church? That's right. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we do have a living hope in Jesus. It's not fading. It's not something that's here today and gone tomorrow, but it will be forever and ever a hope that's fully realized in the death and resurrection and future return of King Jesus. And I pray for those who are walking through the valley or those who are experiencing extreme trial and hardship and, and distress, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of what they have in you, that they have a, a sympathetic high priest in Jesus, access to your throne, where you are generous with your grace, that you will give your people exactly what they need and when they need it. And Lord, would you help us to have that proper perspective, to trust you, that you will give us what we need when we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.